Welcome to this latest episode of the Talking Transformations COVID Diaries. In recent weeks, we've been considering the impact of COVID-19 on different cities and different personalities around the world. We've looked at how it's impacted on daily activities, how it's impaired movement and forced a rethink on built environment issues such as density, commercial space and technology. Today, we're bringing things closer to home here in the Western Cape and across the country in KwaZulu-Natal. We hear from three practitioners working in the development field about their experience so far during the lockdown period, about their hopes about returning to operations and the projects that they're involved with and their ability to kickstart the economy within the spaces that they're operating within. Two of our guests, David Bettersworth and Dion Van Sale, speak on behalf not only of their own professional perspectives and their own observations, but also those of their members. Dave speaks on behalf of the South African Association for Consulting Professional Planners here in the Southern Region and Dion on behalf of the Western Cape Property Development Forum. Our third guest is Siswe M. Klobo, an urban planner and stakeholder engagement facilitator working for the Project Preparation Trust presently in the Etiquini Metropolitan Municipality in KwaZulu-Natal. As we start to think about phase three and the future phases as we work our way out of the lockdown period here in South Africa, we look at both the formal and informal processes that are shaping those spaces and the projects from the different perspectives, the challenges that have been apparent during the lockdown and some of the opportunities to consider when we start to think of the new normal. We ask where have the municipalities done well in responding to technology, things like the online application processing system, the ability to keep a pipeline of projects and applications alive during this period, and what that implies for a future economy within the formal and informal sectors. We also touch on the role of planning, the town planner's role in post-COVID South Africa. What are some of the threats and some of the opportunities that are making themselves available in this period and in the future? We're indebted to Dave, to Siswe and Dion for taking time out of their family weekend to share some of their thoughts and opinions. Really appreciate the efforts and the thinking that went into the preparation for this podcast. As always, we hope you enjoy the episode and would welcome your comments and feedback either via the Anchor podcast platform app where you can leave a message or find us on Twitter via at Talking Transfo and the number one. So it's a Sunday. It's day 52 of the national lockdown here in South Africa. We've progressed from phase five to phase four and there's eager anticipation about what does phase three look like? What does it mean? What does it mean for the construction industry? What does it mean for the the built environment more generally? And today we're joined by three professionals across the country who are dealing with and representing in different ways, uh, different constituencies within their particular interests. Across in Etiquini, we have Siswe and Kobo. Siswe, how are you keeping? Are you keeping well? And where do we find you today in and around Durban? I'm good. I'm good. I'm keeping well. I'm, I'm indoors. I'm at home in, in Glenwood, Durban. Yibo. Fantastic. Well, thank you for joining us. Closer to home here for the podcast, we have Dion Van Sale in Cape Town. Dion, representing the good people of the Western Cape Property Development Forum. How are you keeping, Dion? Are you well? Hi, uh, yeah, interesting times, I must say, all uh, on our toes. And whereabouts in Cape Town do we find you today? Uh, in the CBD. Oh, in Freedom. Okay. Yeah. Fantastic. And also in Cape Town and representing the South African consulting pl- uh, professional practitioners, we have Dave Bettersworth, also in Cape Town. Dave, how are you keeping? 
No, good, thanks. Um, great to have the opportunity to chat. And I'm in my home in uh, Sunningdale, Tableview area of Cape Town. Thanks to the three of you for taking the time and the effort to to join us today. We, as I say, we, we've moved from this period of phase five, this hard lockdown, probably one of the most uh, solid lockdowns across the world that we've seen and certainly one of the longest. I think it's 52 days, if I'm not mistaken, uh, today from the initial announcement and uh, execution by the national government. And today we're trying to get an understanding of what does this next phase look like and how are the different industries responding, whether it's in community engagements uh, on informal settlement upgrades like yourself, Seaswear, or whether it's the feedback that we're getting from members of, for example, the uh, South African Consulting Planning Practitioners or the Western Cape Property Development Forum. Let's start with yourself, Dion. What has been the nature of the concerns and the challenges that your members have been facing. And I'm going to start with prior to lockdown. Before COVID hit, and if you think about three months ago, there were many issues, the economy, not, not least of one of the challenges, ESCOM's load shedding. What was the daily interactions you were having with your constituents? Well, Peter, I think the first thing that one's got to say when one talks about any form of property is that property serves people doing things. And the less people do things, the less need there is for property. So property uh, is incredibly, you know, it's referred to as the bellwether industry, and I think it's it's quite correct. So it's the quickest way to gather or to understand what is actually happening in the economy. So pre-COVID, I think there can be little debate that we were against the ropes as an industry, basically pressurized not just by the economy, but also the ability to move nimbly and quickly in terms of legislation, regulation, and of course, the construction process in South Africa, we use traditional bricks and mortar methodology. It's a slow process. Prior to COVID, uh, I think it's, it's fair to say that the industry was extremely concerned. You could also pick this up in terms of new development, commercial development, retail development was incredibly slow. The sector that seemed to be booming at the time was the warehousing, industrial warehousing industry in preparation for the move across to uh, e-commerce uh, distribution centers were, were, were proving to become more popular. Uh, residential markets sub 2 million seemed to be reasonably stable. It wasn't booming, but it was stable. But the rest was effectively out of the industry, out of the market. So what you saw was a reaction by the industry, I think, verbalizing its frustrations, expressing its concerns about the economy, but also highlighting aspects that has really been undermining uh, growth for a very long time. And, and you've heard us speak on the statutory frameworks within which we work, and David can express perhaps more detail on it. So pre-COVID, uh, not in a good state. Post-COVID, absolute crisis. Now, uh, again, you know, we refer to the term property in a very loose way, but it is literally everything from idea through the statutory processes, through the infrastructure processes, to the building, to handing over a set of keys to a tenant or a purchaser. So where we are right now is our ability to deliver. Our implementation uh, ability has been taken away. You sitting in local authority, Pete, would appreciate that with the best of intentions, the uh, statutory application process has slowed down even further. And of course, uh, when we look at it from the, the start perspective, our tenants and our prospective purchases have all gone into lockdown as well. 
Why have they gone into lockdown? Not necessary because the need doesn't exist, but they just do not know how to read the market. The problem with property is that it's a slow process in itself, but it also takes you a decade at least to recover your your capital input. And if you can't see down the pipeline, and if you can't see a little bit of light at the end of the pipeline, there is absolutely no reason why you would initiate a new project. So I think we're re- literally at at uh, you know the the heart of the storm. Um, and at the moment, most people in the industry. Uh, are trying to to make sense of a very, very uncertain environment. Thanks for those reflections and starting points, Dion. And Dave, I mean, your experience with your members, private sector and the town planning space, are they echoing a lot of what Dion is saying? Uh, Are you finding that there have been uh, subtle differences in the challenges that has been faced? Yeah, your your thoughts on on where, where the planning profession is right now here in the Western Cape? Well, I think, thank you for that. I think that a lot of what Dion echoes and, and has um, reflected on, we um, uh, ricochets uh, onto us and um, has a knock-on effect for us in the consulting planning industry. I think it's important, though, to, to, to maybe just step back a bit and ask the question as to who do consulting planners work for and, and who are the, their clients and what role do they play? Um, there's no doubt that a, a, a key component of our work is for developers such as the one that Dion, uh, the ones that Dion represent. So developers that are initiating projects, let's say it's a housing development, and they approach us and they say, look, our site, uh, we're looking at doing this development on this site. Can you give us advice on the development rights that we have or don't have? And can you run the relevant planning processes for us? And we guide and advise on the likelihood of success of the project and, and we steer it. And then we engage with the officials and run the necessary applications through the system. Immediately, one can see from what I've just described that if the development industry is in crisis and if the development industry is not able to proceed or willing to proceed with projects, suddenly the consulting planning industry doesn't have work. We immediately are affected by that scenario. Everything that Dion has indicated, I think, both prior to to, to, um, the COVID lockdown and during the lockdown, I can immediately echo that. However, we do have other streams of work. We can work for government. It might be that uh, it's a spatial development framework that we're appointed to do or Maybe it's a, uh, a social housing project. So there's a stream of work from government where consulting planners find themselves. And also we have other private sector clients. So for example, it might be somebody that wants to do a one-off um, guest accommodation facility from their property. And they wouldn't be what we'd call the regular developer client. They come to us with a specific need at a specific time. And we assist them uh, in a similar way to we, we assist developers. So to quickly come back to the question of where was the consulting planning industry prior to COVID-19, the short answer would be we were already under under severe pressure. And I could just highlight quickly the, the key areas of concern. Firstly, the economy and the, the lack of work in the property industry which we've already touched on. 
Secondly, a long-standing concern for consulting planners, and I think for planners in general, is the issue of reservation of work. And here, uh, our colleagues in the public sector share the same concerns. It's where one has having to compete for, for work that I've mentioned with, with uh, other professionals in other industries. The core of the, the concern is that we believe that we, as planners, have specific qualifications and expertise that gives us a specific, we are specifically needed for. So in that regard, we feel that there is certain work that we are best and qualified to, to, to do and to undertake. And the fact that we have to compete with other people in that space is obviously a challenging, puts the industry, which is not a big one, uh, under, under, under pressure. The other issue that I think I'd like to touch on is clarity on policy. And there have been some challenges around around that. And it's just generally working with government now, you know, to some extent, that is something that we we face in, 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 in every area in engaging with the job that we do. But where one has a situation where there's maybe a, um, a difference of view on policy from politicians and, and officials, etc., it does make doing business difficult because one can submit an application, think you're on the right track, get to the end of the process and find out that you aren't. So those are all the issues that we've been facing pre-COVID and obviously in the current lockdown, in a sense of being accentuated. Of course, now we have a range of new challenges and that is primarily how do we do business and how do we, we submit our applications and I'm keen to talk through that in a bit more in a bit more detail. Heading eastwards to Etiquini, the work that you've been doing, Seasware, has been primarily with the communities, assisting them in some of the informal settlement upgrades, which has been big news here in South Africa around de-densification and so forth. So, I mean, what is your what was your experience uh, and your engagements with the communities prior to lockdown? And what has, uh, you know, thinking ahead to the future, how have you been able to uh, adjust your program, your communications with your clients there, with the communities you're working with during this period? Uh, thank, thank you, Pete. I think for me, so a, a little bit on, on my background. So I work now for an NGO and I've always worked in the NGO sector straight after school from CPUT. So I started with SDI, which is where I learned about building this relationship between communities and the municipality, which is the core of it, with, with the acceptance that we can't build everyone a house. But then what do the basics look like? So what does basic services look like at community level? And then which came now into the sense of acceptance, I think, in the past couple of years where upgrading is not viewed as the, as the house or as the RTP house. So it's viewed at the level of how do you create basic services, but then also how do you create a functioning urban form within informal settlements? And then without so many standards then and, and those high densities, what does that look like? So can a five-meter road fit in? If it can't, what's the bare minimum we could go to? So I think Coming to Devon, then my pre-work before COVID has been trying to balance and building trust between the two partners, which I think as an NGO, our key, our key customers, the municipality, and then the informal settlement communities, including though the communities around the informal settlements, because I think we all know in SA, the issue of NIMBY is, is a big one as well. 
when it comes to informal settlements to say how do we bring balances between two communities who yeah who are a challenge to each other in the base of their form and affect each other's economy in a way but in functionality they actually give each other power so where we were at we were trying to build the relationship where we have in case that and now with 10 settlements that we're working with trying to bridge communication with Itequini municipality to say okay so how do you engage as the municipality with communities you've already provide basic services your your cabs which literally your toilets and and stand pipes but what's a planned way this can be done between planners and engineering and what's the role of a planner then in the space when it comes to informality where the standard that are set for a functional urban form cannot be met so what are the new things that can be introduced so very much then in our program we got into this idea of how would you set up a frame because i come from cape town from working in in reblocking projects so when i was at this did machine reblocking and a couple of others and then at dag i also started some things around reblocking but we said what are the core functioning areas so opening up your streets and and everything and then increase the basic services from that element so that has been the communication that has been happening even then on this side working with communities and the municipality so we would easily on daily basis you'd organize community meetings leadership meetings try to build capacity from there so that from leaders there's an understanding of how the municipality work but then from the municipality side to say working with planners and engineers to say what could we what's the best we could do in such a form in in such a chaotic urban form where high densities rule and standards for for things cannot be met so what does that look like and so through engagement processes and through some sharing of ideas and drawing up of concepts that's where we were at when covid hit kanda the biggest challenge for me was this idea that you you mustn't you can't have meetings then face to face while it looked all well from the municipality side and our team side where we could meet online the challenge is what does this look like working with communities how do we engage and so yeah that's what we're working on at the moment i think one of the biggest challenges for all of us has been the communication element and let's pick up on that seesway and again mm-hmm. dion and dave the communication that's been going back and forth here we are using skype there's zoom there's 101 different platforms that we're all coming to terms with but how has the nature of the communication changed and how much do you think of that communication is likely to remain and what i suppose will be the impact if we look ahead to things like land use and the commercial uh, sector the office space in particular where this massive disruptor of a change in approach the productivity levels that were going to be uh, monitored and evaluated during this period of enforced lockdown what do you think the lessons may well be learned going going into the future dave and, and i know we had a brief conversation about this before the before we started recording Thanks Pete. I think it's very very interesting and and significant to to kick off with something that I think that we probably have all experienced. It's like we were we were building to a a technological and online wave that was already growing and sort of bursting at the seams that sort of the move towards these forms of communication that was already there before COVID-19. But what has happened is that 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 the whole lockdown has actually just been like the dam wall burst and everyone just rapidly has out of necessity embraced all these technologies just to give a couple of thoughts and and also some perspective of where the industry is at at the moment 
I think what let's talk firstly about the the consulting planning space. So many of us were using these technologies. I mean, I, I'm thinking of my own business. There were times already last year where we started working from home and gearing ourselves up for Skype calls, etc. So for us, um, it's actually been fairly painless to move to a point where we were all working from home. Fortunately, we all had data and we just set ourselves up at home and, and sort of picked up from where we left off. I think that small businesses like ourselves are looking at that and saying, well, actually, this works. You know, you know now it's not going to work for everyone. And, and, and a lot of people can actually work from home and do business. And I think for, for planners, many of us are finding that it actually works quite well. We can have virtual meetings. We've got access to a lot of technology now. We, we don't need to do that many site visits. In any event, we can look at Google Street View. The city of Cape Town's got a fantastic map viewer. So we can do most of our business at home. We can share stuff on the cloud, etc. Yes, of course, we still need to go to site. We still need to do that. And fortunately, it seems under level four and then the coming levels that we will be able to do those under strict social distancing protocols uh, in certain cases, or at least that's the understanding. Turning now to government, this has been really, really interesting. I'll give you a little anecdote. So straight after lockdown, I was chatting to somebody at the city and they were saying, well, we can't we can't do Skype calls with you because our IT system doesn't make provision for those apps. And that's that's almost where they were. But the whole situation has changed. And everyone, I think, at the city, for example, and in government in general, is embracing these new technologies. We're having really effective discussions, virtual meetings, etc. It's really a period of, of rapid change and transformation. Now, I, I don't want to speak for the city um, or any other government organization, but I've been having conversations with senior officials and people um, have really been beginning to embrace and, and just think of a new normal, saying, for example, well, you know, maybe this will carry on, you know, that I think that there's a lot of credit that we can give our official counterparts and how they've really jumped in hook, line and sinker. Uh, we understand that most officials, for example, at the city have access to remote working. They are working remotely. They're embracing their online technologies and systems of application processing, which they already had got underway. There's been some disruption, like for all of us, but it's actually been severely minimized. So now that experience is going to be different from different municipality to municipality. And I think it um, is certainly the case that we've seen that some are struggling more than others. But I think the reality is that the new normal is doable. I think we're going to see more of that. So it's maybe that's, as I said, the let's not waste a good crisis. You've heard that saying. And I think that government and, and I'm talking about in the planning space, planning officials, they are certainly not wasting a good crisis. They are they are moving some faster than others, but the new normal is is definitely happening as we speak.
Siswe, in in your uh, introduction, you were talking about playing that mediation role, bridging the divide between your two clients, the municipality and the community, which at the best of times is quite a challenge. How have you had to adapt in terms of building that trust and using different communication? As you say, you can't stand there in a public meeting now with uh, a room packed with community and officials talking about the reblocking approach or an informal settlement upgrade, how have you gone about your business, keeping the momentum in the project and using different technology to to and continue the conversations at least? So it's been an interesting time and a very tricky one. So I think something that I forgot to mention at first is that, so pre-COVID, all our strategies was looking at how do you best use UISP and bring in basic services. Now with with, with COVID and lockdown, the minister comes out and says, we need to de-densify informal settlements. And so this comes in at national level saying you need to relocate some people in informal settlements, which then within the NGO space creates some sort of a sense of chaos. Because we're like, how is this going to work? Everything is closed. So if you want to relocate people, how are you going to function? What, what, where would you place them? How are you going to build there? How are you going to do the participation process then? That becomes the key. So at the moment, that's our biggest journey that we're working on. But the beauty of it is that some of these relocations, then we have to fight and say, don't do random relocations. Do them aligned to a plan in that community that helps them set up a new urban form. So relocate all the houses that you possibly see along the road. Then instead of just saying, relocate half of the settlement and put it somewhere else. But then relocations have always had an issue whether you're moving people into an RPT houses because people's livelihoods are where they are. And so the biggest problem is how do we communicate this then to, to settlements? How do we communicate even with municipal officials? So the planning side of it with municipal officials has been easier. But also in something that Dave said, with the planning, with the top planning officials, it's easy to get the permission, the permits to do the Skype into their computers. But then with the lower end staff in the municipality, it's still the same plan as the entry level. It's been a nightmare. And to say then, when do you get in, into the conversation? Because then by the time they get into the conversation, they want to challenge the whole decision-making process and say, why were we left out in the picture? But then they couldn't easily get those rights. So that has also been a new thing also for me to witness and be like, okay, so for different personnel at the municipality, there are things that are easier to do home. But then the whole question of now who, who pays for data, because, for example, for myself, I don't use much that much data when I'm at home. I depend on my office function. Now, does the organization mean they have to subsidize me money to say I, my data cost they're adding to this because most of my work is via online work? Then the real nightmare for communities is how do we, how do we engage with everyone? Do we then, how do we, for me, the interesting is to say, how do we set up WhatsApp? Because then what we find and through the scans is that most people have smartphones and most people use WhatsApp. But then this is, again, also the younger generation than the older people who will still send SMS and use the old phones. So it's to say, how do you manage that relationship again to ensure that in the leadership, there's someone young enough to say, I can communicate via WhatsApp if there's an emergency or if we need to send an SMS or a message of some sort. I think what we've been trying to do is to say for the communities, let's use WhatsApp, let's engage. One of the things I've been doing of late is to take that leap in and say, okay, let's go and have a meeting where in a space where we can manage to social distance. But that, then that's only five people out of the leadership structure, the core ones. 
because then even there's so much lost in between the tech communication because we can't get into video chatting yet because of data cost and all of that. And to say, which has been also the personal side to say, how do we get data cost reduction in the country, which is something that we were crying uh, about before COVID-19. Now we mainly rely on data and people still use for data most of your cellular network lines. What negotiations that can take place there so that it helps then on the community side because others easily would connect to fiber and all the other means to rain, but then most people in the community still rely on your cellular networks, which its data costs are high and, and everything is in prices. So where we add is to say, how do we engage with fewer people? How do we talk ideas with people that can create influence then within the community space? But then also for them, how do we ensure they go and talk to their immediate neighbors around the ideas and also bring court decision? Because that's where also the challenge is now, is that with so many communication lines, it's hard to take decisions at community level, also at municipal level. So the struggle of saying, how do we balance the use of technology? How do we effectively then engage with communities to say, this is how you use WhatsApp effectively? So one of the tools we're trying to create, as I had said earlier on, is this app we're trying to do with Open Data Devon where we're saying it's a platform, you could create a link and you could put everything that has to do with COVID on it. And then it's easy for people to update, to run forms and, and create some sort of service. That's mainly how we work. And we also then hey, have people that are core to us in each community as a communication personnel, which we call community development coordinators. So we communicate via those people, they talk to their leadership structures, and see how do they do meetings without organizing big numbers so that decisions can be made. And then we see how do we handle then the locations, parts, and planning. So most of the planning for the relocations has been online, but for the communities, it's kind of struggle. We haven't communicated well because we're also not sure how will procurement work for the new construction? How will meetings with councillors work to propose new relocation sites around where people live already? So yeah, that's where we're at with, with more with the work we do. Yeah, sounds like you've got your plate full there. <laughs> Just mm -hmm. to say, at the best of times, we know informal settlement upgrading and the community work is a huge and very challenging environment. And uh, using that communication, and you've talked about things like the generation gap, the cost of data, those are mm -hmm. huge challenges that we're going to still need to consider and hopefully lessons learned get us to a better mm -hmm. situation even by this time next year. I mean, Dion, listening to this, is there anything that either you'd like to add that's different or is this reinforcing a lot of what you're picking up from the discussions that you've been having with your constituency? Pete, I, I was listening to both David and Cesar there and what they're saying resonates with me very, very strongly at a number of levels. I think the, the central message um, listening to Cesar is that it is no longer business as usual. David mentioned that that is a consulting industry, they've already embraced technology. But as a country, the data debate is not a new debate. And yet, for so many years, it, is, it appears that the government structures have not heard people. Whether it's my world, i.e. the formal industry, or CESOE's clients, nobody has heard the populace. Now, that theme runs through both in the formal and formal development. You know, the one thing that, that again, listening to CISWE, the thing that he must be allowed to do with his clients is now to experiment. Yet government's engagement 
with the formal industry and the informal industry is through regulation. We understand that that you know regulation and funding are basically the two only tools that government has. I've been doing a lot of reading in the last couple of weeks and looking at previous crises throughout the world, and there's a central theme, and that is countries that have been able to deal with chaos and change were the ones that have allowed experimentation. Now, in my world, experimentation takes on a number of forms. We've got to experiment with within product. We've got to be, and I hate the term because everybody seems to be using it as jargon, we've got to be allowed to pivot. Yet our zoning development rights do not allow us to pivot. Once you have an approved site development plan, you're in for another six months to a year to change it through statutory processes. Yet the chaos at the moment requires us to think and to be nimble and to experiment. In Seasway's world, he's got to come up with innovative ways of dealing with current crisis right now, yet legislation and funding structures will probably undermine him. He mentioned the fact that there's an edict coming down of national government and suddenly everybody needs to de-densify. De-densification doesn't just magically happen. You've got to think about it from an engineering point of view. You've got to think it from it from a social perspective, from an end user perspective, from all of these incredible complex social structures that already exist. And I think the theme or the message that I'm getting is if we as a country are going to improve ourselves post this crisis, because as David said, never waste a crisis, then we will have to rethink a number of things. We will have to rethink development finance. We will have to rethink statutory approval processes and what are we driving towards. Uh, we will have to be able to think about creative funding structures. And ultimately, the question to our political uh, colleagues out there is what level of trust are you willing to place in your public officials to be able to make decisions on the trot? This is going to be the test. Now, if you are driving the process from a legislative process, uh, perspective, the answer is we're in trouble. If you are driving the process from a survival and let's come out of this process better, then I'm extremely excited. Now, you know, you, you asked in the beginning, what have we, we've been busy with? Well, on the one end, we're busy trying to survive. But there is also some incredible structures that have come out because of this crisis. We, for example, the Western Cape Property Development Forum and David's organization, we're all part of a national debate uh, called the Construction COVID-19 Rapid Response Task Team. 31 organizations from I would argue the most capitalist perspective, which probably includes ourselves, all the way through to labor and uh, let's call them the social focused uh, organizations, all speaking the same thing. And that is, guys, it cannot be business as usual. We've got to look after our labor. Our labor is literally starting to die because they're not busy, because construction is not busy. We've got to look after our technical skills, both in terms of construction, but also in terms of the professional services. And very importantly, we've got to look after our risk takers, the people that go off with a crazy idea, find money and end users and try and invest in fixed capital investment. So, so we are not just looking at this from a survival perspective. We are also looking at it from a perspective to say, will South Africa, whether you are serving informal communities or whether you are serving formal investors, will it be easier to do business? Or will it be more difficult to do business? 
if it's going to be more 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 easy to uh, to do to do business hopefully the economy will pick up and we will build ourselves out of this crisis if it's going to be business as usual and even more difficult then not to put seasway on 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 the spot but i suspect that we will see some social reaction and uh community starting to take exception to the business as usual mentality so i i i'm looking at this from on the one hand from a perspective that we've got to survive but i'm actually fascinated to see whether we will take uh, the initiative to do things differently going forward. Dave, do you want to come in there? What what does doing things differently mean in your space? What do you think some of the ingredients for that would be? And then, Cizwe, let's hear from yourself what your thoughts might be on it. To come back to the issue of spatial transformation, I think that it's now imperative. We need to, as as a country, embrace spatial transformation hook, line, and sinker. We we need to be serious about having a developmental agenda. Now, I think that needs a clear political focus and leadership. Then we need to look at the various mechanisms that are going to help us get there. I think, for example, we've got very sophisticated planning legislation in many respects. We maybe need to ask the question, is it developmentally focused enough? Is it simple enough in some ways? In, in certain cases, in certain areas, we're quite NIMBY focused. We're concerned about a high-rise apartment block impacting on uh, the, 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 the people that live around it. Now, I'm not for a minute saying that we, we need to ignore those very valid concerns, but if that high-rise apartment block is imperative to providing more affordable housing options, close to public transport, etc., then we've got to get serious about this. The COVID crisis is, is, is accentuating that need to, to really get serious about change, if I can put it that way. So, yes, on the planning front, I think that it is important that we start looking at some of our regulations. And if I may go there, the, the, the tale of two cities issue. You know, we've got to look at what regulations work in what context, perhaps. But certainly, I think that some of the things that Dion has touched on, I'm also concerned about. You know, our, our, our construction industry, our developers need flexibility right now. It's in a rapidly changing world. Does our planning law give us sufficient flexibility to provide that while balancing public interests and, and, and public rights? I think that's a that's a very significant debate and something we as planners need to seriously look at going forward. Cizwe, in, in your space, any thoughts about this idea of change and and focus and speed in the system? I think it's something I feel like we've been advocating for for some time, especially in our space, in dealing with informality and, and being worried enough to say that the regulations are controlled by one set of rules that have served and worked for one side of the city instead of the embracing that there's actually two sides of the city. That has been something that we've been calling for for a while and, and to see how it function. Even in this space, when I talk about one of the fights before COVID and, and even right now was to say, can you fit in sewer pipes and water pipes in a three-meter white room without the standard being set for that to get some engineers and planners to approve that process has been a struggle. But then they see the value in the pathway in that way. I agree with most of the stuff that Jen said, especially for change that is required in many elements and to embrace a number of new strategies and a number of ways of new ways that we need to function that really question who we are as a country. What's our development agenda? 
and who is it embracing and how do we bring balance amongst the two cities within the one city? I think the one thing I wanted to comment on, first there was this issue of social change that is already happening on the ground, where just on the littlest thing, one of the biggest challenges has been food with informal settlements, because mm-hmm. then people are not making daily income. And so it's been where the issue of contractors, the big contractor is saying, I don't have work, to the guy who works and stays in informal settlements who says, now after two weeks, I don't have any money to bring home. So what do I eat? How do I make that function? And when you look at our whole political system, government tried helping or is trying to help. But then when you look at our flawed functioning uh, systems, people have just made that whole thing very complicated. And how can we use technology then in those regards to say, when people want food, here's a way to access food. But then to say, now let's get back to work. What does that look like? How does construction at close proximity where one doesn't put themselves in, in a risk look like at the end product? Or how does the contractor the small contractor survives in this meantime. How do we do maintenance of things? Which is what I think also led to, to opening up of, of some hardware stores, which was a nightmare that people wanting to fix things around their homes, which was a big challenge to say, how do you invite them, the small contractor, so that he's able to take care and feed his family? For me, there's, there's a number of questions or a number of things that need to be addressed. So we can say, where are we going and how are we moving with, with COVID? Because then this seems like it will be for some time or it will run longer than we anticipate. Things won't get back to the new normal. While we'll try and set up the new normal with technology, but in functionality, what would work? What will it look like for the end user, plus also for the little guy on the ground? For the, for the small contractor, what does that look like? Where is he going to get his job opportunities? But as well, which he usually subcontracts on, on a big job. The issue of saying, what does spatial transformation look like under upgrading? where we're no longer focusing on housing and to say, how do we create equal societies? Because the fight to say others are functioning and while others are dying of hunger is huge at the moment. Mm. I would like the fact that I could go in and chew at a spa, but then when I go in the community side, I see that disaster there. The kids are all over the place. So to be asked on simple things, how does one quarantine in a shack? Where if, if they are affected by this, how do they function from a home in that way? Where do they get their access to water now? Because then that's a shared facility or access to a loop because that's a shared facility has also been a huge issue. What is, what is the new way for informality has been, has been quite a challenge. But then to say, how do we address the little things in between so that we, we know moving forward, at least everyone has got some sense of functionality, which, is, which won't be the best as to what they know but then it, it creates this new environment and this new way for one to survive has been for me the number one challenge. While we're looking at the, at the bigger things as well, of how do we get back things? How do we connect via technology and how do we function? So some of these movements, the social movement and the fights between communities, the fight between formal and informal communities where they are surrounding each other have started. And, and the question of saying, why are the ones in that informal settlement getting food? when we in the formal side are not getting food, who's more important here and how do we function? So even when you take care of others, how do you balance your taking care so that it doesn't seem to be only focused on the one end? Or how is that made a collective decision in a time like this where you can't get people in in one space to talk to each other? So yeah. Certainly the whole question of equity during this period of lockdown, equity to everything from food 
spatial transformation, the impact on different communities is going to be something that I think a lot of uh, research and soul searching will go on in in the months to come. One of the impressions I get is that even in your interactions there in KZN, you're working primarily, if I understood correctly, Seasware with the with the metropolitan municipality. And Dion and Dave, I'm guessing that the majority of the sort of in terms of volume of work of your clients is probably in and around the Cape Town metro. But how have you seen in particular, Dion and Dave, the difference between the operations of, say, a metropolitan authority like Cape Town versus some of the uh, smaller districts and local municipalities, the online versus offline, the whole question of technology and its ability to keep keep the engine going, even during this period of changing dynamics of a slowdown Anything you'd like to reflect on in terms of the Western Cape and the Southern region? The points, again, that CSWI has raised have triggered a couple of things in my mind. And I'll ask you a question now regarding how different municipalities seem to function. But the consensus amongst a number of economists prior to the COVID was that the civil service uh, at the moment is in a dangerous position purely because of the levels of remuneration uh, agreed salary increases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, in our sector, in the formal development sector, I'm not aware of a single company that has not cut salaries. Yet, other than the president and the odd premier that is you know, that has volunteered certain salary cuts, the message that we are getting on the ground is it's business as usual. Now, I'm not for one moment suggesting we should just unilaterally you know, take money away from the civil service. But I think there is part of the message is is that the populace in general, the full spectrum of populace, and Ciswick eloquently pointed out, if you're in an in a, in a, in a informal settlement and if you were a construction labor, the, the reality is you cannot feed your family. And again, you know, we take note of, of the various support programs being put in place. But how many times can you feed your family in the month for 350 rand, which is the current support grant? I think we as South Africans are looking for is a united position of actually embracing the changes that David is talking about. But it starts with how do we partner with civil service versus are we going to continue with the so-called client relationship, i.e. I don't like my client, I don't serve him. And I think there's a whole debate. How have smaller municipalities taken this position? And again, I think one's going to be appreciative of levels of, of bureaucracy and size. The smaller municipalities are varied. Those with leadership that are actually open for business prior to COVID have upped the game. Uh, I know of one of the uh, better known municipalities in the Western Cape that fast tracked all of their uh, own expenditure to keep people busy. And they are drumming it out in terms of preparing for public rollout. I know of a similar scale municipality that is yet to answer telephone. So I think at the end of the day, it's not necessarily how does a type of municipality respond. The question is, what is the leadership and is there effective political and executive leadership that is interested in delivery? Because quite frankly, the current crisis is actually illustrating what existed prior to the crisis. So we are we are looking as an industry for for those green shoots to say it's not just the economic green shoots, it's the open for business green shoots. And I must say certain municipalities are putting up their hand and saying we are here to help and hopefully they will be supported post this crisis. Dave, from your side, any thoughts, any further contributions on this particular issue? 
Um, I mean, uh, I think that Dion has raised a lot of valid points, um, but maybe just to, to, to turn to the actual technical aspects of how the applications are processed and how business is done. I know I said earlier that everyone is embracing the new normal, and I really believe that is the case. But just reflecting on my experience, for example, in the Western Cape, but at the same time uh, receiving circulars from my colleagues up north of some of the other municipalities, and even looking at within our province, the Western Cape, there's most certainly differences, and, and, and people are different stages down that road. So one of the key areas I think that's really just interesting to zoom in on is advertising. So I know CISO has reflected a lot on that in the, a more informal context, but in an informal uh, formal context, the big issue at the moment is how do we shift from the registered mail system of notifying communities and affected parties of applications to an electronic system? Now, this debate had been going on before COVID, but COVID just essentially by resulting in a lockdown that shut down the postal service highlighted this. And people and, and our members are saying, my goodness, so how, do we, how do we ensure our applications are advertised? If you can't advertise your application, your planning application, your whole process comes to, to a grinding halt. It's been interesting to see how province and municipalities have been reflecting on this. In the Western Cape in general, the message from province has been, this is doable in terms of law and, and where we need to make a few tweaks, we'll definitely do that. And um, we'll, we'll get our land use planning ordinance, we'll, we'll get certain things amended quickly. But guys, go for it. You can advertise via email, etc. You know, in some cases, the message has been just make sure that those uh, affected parties are willing to receive correspondence by email. Now, I've seen circulars from, from other municipalities saying, uh, in other areas saying, I'm sorry, we just can't advertise. So now when, when, you, when, you, when you approach a situation like that, and there might be valid reasons for it, what it means is you're literally shutting down the planning process. And that has a knock-on effect for Dion's members is simply they can't get their planning approvals. They can't submit building plans, and it's all very well with governments saying, well, when uh, we get to level three or two, the construction industry can get back going. Well, how can you get going if you don't have your planning approval? So we should be really focusing on getting planning applications and building approvals moving during this time so that when the various stages of lockdown allow the construction industry to, 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 to open up, they've got their approvals in place. This is a big deal, and I think that there's really a need for municipalities and provinces to look seriously at this issue and not just say, well, we can't offer a service, you know, we don't have access to X, Y, and Z, so we, sorry, you know, uh, we're shutting down. And here, I, I think that in, in, I'd like to commend the city of Cape Town. They were ahead of the curve in terms of having an online planning and building development submission system in place already. So all that happened during lockdown is that we just carried on to some extent as normal submitting our planning applications online. And then the city moved quickly to get their officials remotely accessed into the system and, and provided laptops and online access to their electronic system. What does this mean? Those officials have been able to carry on working from home. Not perfect 
but generally there's been a pretty good level of service delivery. So I think that's something that other municipalities can can certainly learn from. Yeah, I think from my side, the, the, the one thing that I think the industry is looking out for is, you know, dealing with our own applications is one thing. But I think the opportunity exists for every sphere of government to fast track its own capital investment projects. Bearing in mind, government uses the same consultants and contractors as the private sector does. There is general consensus that one thing that has been holding back the economy is the lack of bulk infrastructural capacity at various municipal levels or various municipalities. And I think even if one was to align the statutory processes to fast track bulk infrastructure and to get the contractors back on site, so that many of those people that CISW is referring to that, that live in, in, in poorer communities or even informal communities can put pay, uh, food on the table, then I think there will be a positive lead to which the private sector can slipstream. You know, if one if one looks at and the obvious example is the US post Great Depression, how did they get themselves out of that? Now, part of their strategy was to build themselves out of out of problem. Now, where we waiting for the private sector to find confidence and to see the the the, the light at the end of the tunnel? Perhaps we should be moving a lot of our attention to fast-tracking public investment, infrastructure projects, and the housing projects that CISWI is busy with, because that will create momentum, it will create energy, and of course, it will put money into the economy, and the more money there is in the economy, the easier it is for the private sector to participate. So I, I think this opportunity, our success in dealing with the crisis, is partly going to be measured in, in our ability to get our public projects going. Siswe, anything from your side on this particular issue? I think for me what's important is, and it's something that was just mentioned now now, in terms of how do we move forward. So the struggle in, in that I always have is how do we facilitate a South Africa that works together so that we collaboratively take decisions. So the whole question of, so what's our development agenda as a country and how do we marry the two cities so that we know this is where we're going. So it doesn't matter the other stuff and how it affects us. Because sometimes I feel we get caught up so much into saying, oh, look what the government is doing for that one, what it's not doing for this one. Because we're still functioning at, at two, and, and I don't know, so at the two tails of the city. So we're still, it's us and them versus type of thing. So with this, with this crisis for me, it's, it's to wonder, how does it bring us together so we can see value in each other as a country? And so we can set up the development agenda that drives us, that says, oh, the value of the contractor, which one of the easiest things that was picked up was who's the essential worker at the start of lockdown, the value of that shop right worker, the value of that teal at someone being at that supposedly low level of skills, but then the value they bring when things are kind of slowed down. But to say, so how do they function? Do they really then need to get into a taxi in order to come into a, a shop supermarket this far out in town? How do we keep that? Because then we understand maybe in that taxi when they're all together, there's high risk of infection. So what does then, how does this change us and say, okay, let's look at who runs the stores in town, is the empty buildings where then we can start talking low cost housing inside, or oh, sorry, what's that? Affordable housing inside the CBD or close by so that our core workers are not traveling those long distances because now we're saying functionality is key for us all. And we're saying we, we're then starting to break down these bridges between our city that means others have to travel longer and then while they come to key areas. One of the strong concepts that I mentioned with reblocking was to say if there's an informal settlement where it's at, how do you reorganize it 
so that you deal with issues such as flooding, such as opening up a road network, such as putting in maximum services, so that people can even start debating, ooh, if we have water to one-on-one -on -one service, to one-on-one -on -one level, how do we actually participate in paying for it? Because I know that the standard norm is that no informal dwellers don't pay for water. But as someone myself who's born and raised in an informal settlement, I remember in the earlier stages, we're always paying for water, whether you're going to hire someone to go and fill up that bucket into the far end. But then as things became more communal, then the payment option went away. But then what I saw with drip locking is the more you increase the services and you bring them at cluster level, there's way much more taking care from within the community on its own. Uh, I think one of the lessons that was brought up from Shinwam was that how much the city was spending to maintain services in Shinwam was nine times less than what they spend in other informal settlements because the maximum number of services meant at the cluster level, the neighborhood, at neighborhood level, in each people, they can take care of the service. They feel more pride in it. So I think for me, the biggest one is how do we bring everyone together and say, this is the development agenda that we set as, as a country that's driving us to where we need to go. How do we prioritize our essential worker, but also how do we take care of the little guy in the corner? One of the biggest questions I've been having, what's the role of planning in terms of analyzing where risk is at at the moment? What, what are your risk areas? How do we function? If you look, the whole question of how do you create quarantine sites in, in a place like Kailicha so that at least you're able to isolate people outside and, and keep the other community functioning, those are affected. So what has been the role of planning in those regards and saying, how do we balance how we're living and how do we engage with the COVID throughout this time? So, yeah. My question to each of you is really what does sort of success look like come December 2020? So in sort of seven months time, as we wrap up the year, coming off such a terrible disruption, such a terrible uh, state of the economy and so forth. Are there any green shoots we would imagine would be a, a measure of success come December? Even if it's something as basic as we're able to move between provinces, maybe move between national borders. So it's a more broad question than just the planning or engagement around stakeholders and, and informal settlement upgrading. Well, thank you for that. I think, Pete, seeing that you mentioned that we can go a little broader than just maybe uh, speaking on our, our respective spaces, for me, a green shoot would be just a national embracing of the South Africa project um, by all sectors of society. So we would have been looking back in December and saying, thank goodness we flattened the curve and uh, the infections are down. Um, the vaccine is hopefully soon on its way. But maybe we would have reflected back and said, it's all a, we've, we've actually had an opportunity to pause and, and, and reflect. And what has emerged for us as a country is a, is a clear focus. There's, there's just been a more unified political approach to the urgent need for us to move ahead with our spatial transformation agenda. There's general better understanding from all sectors of society as to what that means and a general buy-in to that. There's a developmental focus. There's um, discussions underway about investing in new infrastructure, looking at at, at, for example, something that we haven't really touched on today too much, our existing formal areas, saying there's land that is available within those that is actually serviced and that that can be developed for housing, it can be developed for other things, 
and that we can all buy into this and embrace this as part of the transformation agenda. So specifically coming to planning, I think for us, uh, the green shoots would be our role being appreciated and respected professionally, understanding that planners have got a key role to play in this or everything that I mentioned and having seen an embracing of a collective strategy by private and public sector, how can we work together? How can we make this happen? How can we deal with the red tape? And on top of that, we've all embraced the new normal and it's just helped us in terms of using the online technologies to make this happen. Thanks, Dave. Dion, from your side? End of the year is a bit far out. What do I expect in the next two weeks? I expect the construction sector in totality can go back to site. Why? Because firstly, we employ some of the poorest of the poor and we need to get food on the table. Secondly, building buildings and infrastructure is an illustration on whether we believe in our own future or not. So at two levels, I would like to see the construction sector active. I would like to see it active because uh, our people are important to us, but I'd also like to see it active as a practical illustration that we actually believe in our future. So to answer your question, what do I expect by the end of the year? I also expect government to tell us that they're interested in our future. So I expect an announcement about the alignment of statutory processes to a, if not a single process, at least aligned processes. I see a major emphasis on the spending of capital budgets. And I do see uh, as a vote of confidence in our own future mandates going down to the lowest level of officialdom that are pro-investment, pro-development mandates. I think our politicians will have to do a lot of introspection and they will have to relinquish some power and they need to mandate technical experts to get on and do it. If we don't see those things, then the message will be it's business as usual. And we know that the business as usual model does not end uh, in a very nice way. Uh, I then expect social response and uh, yeah. But at some stage, if we are serious about the new South Africa, the integrated South Africa, we need to see those messages coming through. Alignment, optimization of statutory processes, spending of capital budgets, and supporting of officials that actually wanted to get things done. Those are clear messages, Dion. Thank you for sharing those with us. And Siswe, last but certainly not least on this, what's your your, your sure. thinking around the, the future, weeks ahead, the months ahead, and what potentially success looks like from your from your space? I think my, my biggest conundrum personally is, because I've also started engaging more with settlements, and as, as I was saying in this space, is, so if, and, and this is more like question to, to Dion, so how do we ensure safety when we open up construction industry? So how do we ensure that there has been a struggle of balancing between hunger now that comes with not having an income, and then the hunger, the possible hunger, when a construction worker has been then affected by COVID after being back at work and being functioning in between spaces. So for that family, if, I, if, if I'm questioning, so to say, which one is better, which, which it, it all seems tough. So at the construction level, when we open up and we know some sites even struggle with basic safety, so how are we going to ensure at least COVID safety as a tag on to those construction safety, which has been some, some struggle for me to say, okay, I understand 
we need to make income. It's struggling at household level. But then what happens knowing our, the ones at the lowest, our whole, whole health issues in, in SA to say, okay, when we open up some markets, how are we going to deal then or how are we going to balance safety to ensure safety so that people don't get sick in numbers and then our economism stands still because then we don't have enough work power anymore, which is the worst when I try the worst. But I think the immediate goals to see the price of data going down, so coming back to the point, to see the price of data going down because we're relying more online work now and it would be nice if, we, if as part of the South African story we start understanding our economy. We can't have data costs that are so shooting up the sky. And then to, to see, to definitely see more conversation around Project South Africa so we can determine who we are and who we want to be and how we're going to get there as a collective. And then to see more, I think, more change on the ground and embracing working from different ends and, and, and communities being able to participate and create change, whether then this is done through more online uh, platforms for the time being where people have more to say and the film being listened to. And definitely more, I would say, more conversations that talk, like I said, with Project SA, but also talk broader to say, what do, what do different corners of SA look like? And how do we explore more the role of a town planner in times like this, so that the work is not just focused only on the top building, but then it's an analysis of strategies and all the other changes to say, what's the city changing like now at the moment? So when we do have disasters like this, what are the key changes that we see taking place? And then in my own end, is to see more change and more development on the ground so that people are not stuck. If I were to share one story, it would have been about a lady who, who, who tested positive last week in one informal settlement. She was told at the workplace, please go back home. And then what she did was to send her daughter first thing to a rural, to a rural community where she comes from. And then she locked herself in for two days when the community finally heard that she was te- she had tested positive, they were so angry with her. And then so much that other people, because in fear of COVID, they were like, we need to demolish that structure because where is she going to go and get water? She's going to go to the same tap we share as a community. Where is she going to get, to get sanitation? That's the same tap we use as a community. Until a breakthrough came in by contacting the councillor and the councillor had to fight for her to be taken to to say quarantine site, which the community didn't know that information. So the fear of COVID on the ground is real in the same way then people are experiencing hunger. So how we marry the two for me would be the key success going forward towards December or the coming weeks. So yeah, into. No, thank you, Cizwe. Some sobering reminders of some of the real challenges that our communities are facing, uh, the stigmatization, mm. the, the fear factor. It feels like HIV, uh, AIDS all over again in so many different ways. And that's a, a very sobering reminder of the realities on the ground. And thank you for sharing that with us. Before we wrap, uh, Dion, did you want to respond at all to the point that Seasware made around the industry's thinking and approach to the mitigation and safety measures in trying to, as you say, get people back on the ground and get the industry back to work. Have there been any thoughts and engagements, and maybe just a brief answer to that and how that's being addressed? Thanks, Pete. Yes, I think we all share CISWA's concerns. Um, the good news is that for the last four weeks, 31 organizations have been working together and made submissions on health and safety standards to national government. And I understand that most of those submissions are being accepted. The reality is, 
and this is the sad part of this, is that the formal contracting industry will adhere to the regulations. The lower down the pecking order you go and the more you get to the, the bucky builder, the reality is those people either are not informed or they cannot necessarily afford the, the, the various measures that I need to put in place. And again, at this point, I think the call is to government to, to look at ways that it can provide let's call it COVID guides to these contractors, share one health and safety officer between 10 sites, uh, use the opportunity to train and to educate rather than necessarily go out, going out there with a policing mentality. I think the opportunity would be to use this crisis to, to take health and safety to the next tier, i.e. the smaller contractors. Our industry, whether we like it or not, is a dangerous industry. People are working in, in, in harsh environments, um, uh, we're working with raw materials, you know, brick falls on your head. That's very, very serious. So health and safety, I'm proud to say the construction industry in general is probably one of the most regulated industries when it comes to health and safety and therefore probably also the appropriate industry to to look at, at opening up. But the reality is that there are sectors and specifically the smaller guys that can't necessarily afford or are not necessarily trained in health and safety standards. And I think this is where an opportunity is both for government, but also for the health and safety industry to, to take hands with the smaller guys and assist. And I think the way to do that is to call on the, the suppliers, uh, you know, the, 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 the hardwares to also create some form of awareness with the smaller guys. It is a reality and we've got to deal with it. But unfortunately, you know, it, it takes us to the debate of are we going to lose more people of hunger or are we going to lose more people of COVID, uh, due to COVID? And can we? how long can we afford for people uh, not to put bread on the table? And it's an unfortunate balance. And I'm very, very uh, I'm relieved that I'm not in the president's shoes that, that need to make that decision. It's a tough call. Yeah, so we are thinking of the decision makers in these times, but uh, we believe that there are some some measures in place and probably uh, the the right type of measures to support the constra- contractors or the labour. Thanks for that, Chair Dion. As you say, those making the decisions, our our thoughts are certainly with them, and our appreciation for the for the effort and the thinking that is going on. Seizeway, sorry, there was one issue you wanted to respond uh, to, and just uh, as a concluding remark. Yeah, boy, yes. So I think. Definitely agree uh, with Dio, and it's a, it's a tough call to, to make and say which one to decide. But I think one of the things I wanted to mention, and obviously I don't think I could, is to say on the medical side of things, how do we also fast-track research to, to look at both modern and traditional? I know there's a lot of focus now on vaccine, but then also some traditional methods that within the country we've been using for years to survive some of the basic things that, that are coming up with COVID. So I think for me, that's one of the also a strong interest. I know there's a, something that Madagascar has shown and said it's working from their side. And then they were waiting to hear from the World Health Organization, which nothing has happened. The shocker for me personally was to hear that Madagascar also asked South Africa to help with their research. And, but then they even come through. And this, for us South Africans, it's, it's a traditional medicine that easily find on Table Mountain. And, and I know some people on the ground have started using it more, but then, so I'd love to see the, the, the researched process onto it to see how effective it is or, or as, as we go forward. Sure, sure. Siswe, thanks very much. And colleagues, thank you very much for your thoughts and your reflections over this last hour and a quarter or so. 
Really, really appreciate your time and your efforts and your thoughts. And all the very best to you, your families, and the, as I say, the constituencies that you're representing and the work that you're doing. We wish you well for the future. And please enjoy the rest of your afternoon. All the best, Dion. All the best, Dave. All the best, Seaswick. Thanks. Uh, thank you so much. Much appreciated. Thank, thanks, Pete. Good initiative. And we support you. Thanks. Thanks a lot, Pete. Uh, much appreciated. And thanks to everyone for the conversation. It was nice and tight. Thank you. Be safe, colleagues. All the best. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Talking Transformation podcast. Find an archive of over 30 episodes available via your podcast platform. Over 3,200 listeners have taken advantage of that archive, and we hope to bring you more guests, more themes around spatial transformation in the future. We're indebted to Tribal Need for providing our theme music. You can find out more about their live lockdown shows via tribalneed.com.